Good evening. It's June the 13th, and that means it's exactly one year to the day since GB News launched on the UK media scene. It was an attempt at breaking up the cosy consensus of British broadcasting. And I think everybody would have to say the opening, the first few acts were a little bit on the rocky side. Well, what startup in life doesn't have a difficult start? But here we are a year on. We're well established. We built a good viewer and listener base on DAB as well. I think we're finding our own identity. And I genuinely believe, I genuinely believe that what this channel does is to explore issues that others try to bury under the carpet, but make sure at all times both sides of the debate have a fair and equal say. And we don't patronise you, we let you at home make your minds up what you think. I wasn't there at the very beginning, I joined just a few weeks later, but I'm very proud to be part of what we're now branding, calling and believing to be the People's Channel. Now, talking about the people, the people voted for a Conservative government. They put them in with a majority of 80. And one of the big pledges was to deal with illegal immigration. Now, of course, that can take place in the back of lorries. It can take place in all sorts of ways. But the most visible of all of those are the boats coming across the Channel. 111 people confirmed to have crossed yesterday. As I speak, there is an RNLI lifeboat coming into Dover. We're through 10,000 for this year. Who knows what it'll be? It could even be 100,000 people. The government's big attempt to stop this, to stop the criminal gangs, to stop this trade, and indeed, let's be honest, to stop the drownings of the channel, is their Rwanda policy. It is to send those to Rwanda who would never have a chance, in their view, of qualifying for refugee status. And yet, they're being met with a wall of opposition. In fact, deporting anybody who's here illegally, who's overstayed their visa, or even committed criminal offences, now sees extraordinary street protests. We saw this in Peckham at the weekend. The police went to pick up somebody who'd overstayed their visa, and a mob in the street attacked the police. We've seen similar scenes at Gatwick Airport, where there is a detention centre for those who might get sent tomorrow to Rwanda. Uh, and the whole thing's extraordinary. 130 people were due to be on that flight tomorrow. Last I heard, it's down to eight or nine. A whole series of challenges have been issued, despite the fact the government has won twice in court over the legality of these, fleets, of, of these flights going. And yet, because of not just the Human Rights Act and not just the incorporation of the ECHR into British law, but now the Modern Slavery Act is being invoked in many of these cases. Quite why these flights are due to go from Gatwick or Stansted, where we could see public protest and not going from Bryce Norton or a military base is, I guess, something of an argument that must be going on between Priti Patel and Ben Wallace, our Defence Secretary. But it does seem to me that if you have an elected government of a country that makes a decision and has ministers that wants to put into place the will of the people, and please, Prince Charles, take note... You know, the Archbishop of Canterbury I've given up on a long time ago, but when Prince Charles says it's appalling these flights should go to Rwanda, perhaps he ought to be reminded that the vast majority of those in the Mall last weekend would take a different view. But is this country run by the people electing a government, or is it run by judges in our new 
modern Blairite Britain. So you please, folks at home, tell me, give me your opinion. Who's in charge? You the voters or the judges? Farage at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me is senior partner of immigration lawyers, McGrath Sheldrick, Chris McGrath. Nigel. Chris, do you understand that this is an issue and there are rights and wrongs of people that come and some would qualify as refugees and some would not qualify as refugees? Do you understand there is a huge weight of public opinion out there in this country that says people crossing over the channel in these small boats being given four-star hotels, health care, dental care. Do you understand the sense of frustration there is in the country? I'm not too sure I accept the premise. OK. Um, people don't get into these kayak, rigid inflatables out of choice. I think it's important to make the point initially, we do not have a proper functioning asylum law in this country. If I was escaping torture, persecution, whatever, I couldn't walk into a British consulate in my country of origin and say, I'd like a visa, please. I want to claim asylum. You'd be shown the door very, very quickly. The only lawful route, and this does seem ridiculous, but the only lawful route is, let's take an example. A Ukrainian comes to the UK to mm. visit family while here the Russians invade, he can't go back. He is here lawfully as a visitor. He can then but Chris, isn't seek that asylum. Isn't that ignoring our extraordinary generosity to those from Hong Kong? And the numbers coming from Hong Kong are increasing really quite quickly. Our generosity to those from Afghanistan, our generosity to those from Ukraine, albeit red tape, may have slowed the process up. And it's not as if we've ducked our obligations to give refugee status, is it? I think that's slightly missing the point. I mean, for example, Germany, Poland, other countries, not just the Ukraine, but Afghanistan and elsewhere, after the Syrian crisis, they took on, took in many, many more people uh, but not than we have done. But not voluntarily. You yes. know, I've heard this argument about France, and actually, the reason they had more people coming into their country was because they crossed the Mediterranean, and once they'd been accepted, there wasn't much they could do. But so it wasn't out of choice. To Germany. It wasn't out of choice. I mean, do you see any limit? I mean, given that the UNHCR say there are roughly now 80 million people displaced around the world through whether it's famine, mm, whether war. it's drought, whether it's war, whatever it is. I mean, do you see any limit to the numbers we should accept? It's difficult to be to try and put figures on these things and so, say, well, 200,000 is fine. A million? I mean, a million a year? Would knows? that be fine with you? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even seek to comment on numbers. But what are people trying to do? See, I put it to you that mainstream media constantly talks about desperate people. The BBC, every news report of the channel, desperate people. I've met hundreds of the people crossing the English Channel. I've been out there, I've been on beaches. Don't look very desperate to me. In fact, a lot of them look very well dressed. Um, I've actually filmed for GB News them throwing iPhones into the sea, documents into the sea to willfully, deliberately disguise their identity. 90% of them are men. That happens. 70% are young men. These aren't refugees, they're economic migrants. And many of them 
will finish up in this country in illegal activities. Some are, some aren't. And it's very difficult without a full and rigorous investigation to make a decision on who's an economic migrant, who's genuinely but if they throw their phones into the persecution. Sea, I mean, if you were a genuine refugee, mm -hmm. I put it to you, Chris, if you were a genuine refugee fleeing persecution, you wouldn't be ashamed of your background or your, or your identity, would you? Shouldn't be, but one never knows where one's going to end up. Well, I have to say, I have to say, when I ask people like you, and I understand the arguments about compassion, I understand the arguments about our history, whether it's with Huguenots or Jewish people or Ugandan Asians or whatever it is, I understand all these arguments. And I think most British people are actually quite proud of the record that we've played, you know, over the last few centuries in terms of looking after genuine refugees. This whole thing is a gigantic scam, isn't it? It may well be for the people smugglers. I do not believe that you put your life at risk, the lives of your spouses, your kids at risk, on these boats, which are inherently dangerous, crossing one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world in these things is a recipe for potential disaster. There's Fine. no doubt about that. Final I, thought. Final I would thought, submit yeah. that the vast majority of these people are genuine. But I'm more concerned right now with the Rwanda policy. And, of course, ultimately that has to be determined by judges. But what about a Conservative majority government mm. with a thumping great majority who have said they will deal with this problem, who get win two court cases and then start to lose a whole series of others. Who's in charge of Britain? Judges interpreting the Human Rights Act or people that, that, that we voted for and put well, in power? The Conservative government has also signed up to the Human Rights Act as well as the uh, uh, EN... ECHR. That's one. Uh, <laughs> and so we're all really in the same boat here, if you'll... Forgive the I'll forgive it. apparent I'll pun. forgive it. But actually, the, actually, I'll end there on a point of agreement with you. A I want to say one more thing Please do. before you kick me off. Please do. And that is that they have not... The, the, the claimants have not lost two cases. They have lost two injunction cases. Mm -hmm. The judicial review, the full judicial review for not only these claimants, but many hundreds of other individuals is down the road, by yeah. about two months. Yeah. The balance of convenience, I would say, clearly favours the claimants. Leave it well, for two months. What's going to happen in the meantime? Oh, I'll tell you what will happen in two months. In two months, there'll be 20,000 more that cross the channel, 20,000 more that need accommodation, 20,000 more that need dental care and health care, and that's part of the problem. Chris, I thank you very much. Geoffrey Robertson QC joins me, former United Nations judge, founder and joint head of Doughty Street Chambers. Good evening, Geoffrey. Good evening and happy birthday. Thank you very much indeed. Now, Geoffrey, do you understand my angst here? That we have an elected government just, with a big majority... Can I, I, I correct you? You opened by saying the courts had decided the policy was legal. Well, they did no such thing. They, on Friday, a judge said it was inconvenient to stop the flight 
And today the Court of Appeal said that there was no reason to overturn him. So uh, as has just been pointed out, the full decision, the full hearing on whether this policy is legal or not under international law will be heard in a few weeks' time. And I suppose if anyone goes on this benighted flight tomorrow night, as you pointed out, there may just be one or two or none uh, flying. But if they do fly and the policy is declared illegal, we may have to bring them back. Yeah, I mean, Geoffrey, thank you for that. Uh, let me ask you, is there any point having elections anymore? Is there any point having a government? Is there any point having a cabinet no, you, of ministers you, you are, if, you, you if what are, they decide you, gets overruled? I mean, I mean, I mean this, this is, I, I'm say. arguing here, it's about democracy. No, of course it is. It is utterly about democracy. And if this government had the gumption to put this plan to parliament, then parliament could have passed a law which would be entirely judge-proof, because Parliament runs Britain, not the judges, not the people, it's Parliament. And the government could have put the Rwanda plan to Parliament, made full disclosure, had it fully debated, and if it had passed as a law, new immigration law, the judges yep. could not have touched it, because Parliament is sovereign. Now, the government didn't have the gumption to do that, which is why the matter comes before the courts to decide whether the plan is lawful. And one of the great things about Britain, I think uh, the greatest thing in a way about Britain, is that unlike other countries, it obeys international law or it strives to follow it. That was laid down by William Gladstone. 150 years ago. Yes, so yes, but William Gladstone, if, but William Gladstone, if, but w William Gladstone wasn't a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, where even though we've left the European Union, a court in Strasbourg could make binding decisions on our country. Doesn't that now need to be well, corrected? Well, that's not true. That's not true. We can always bypass the European Convention by making uh, an abstention from a particular policy. Uh, it's not correct that the European uh, Court can overturn a law of the British Parliament. It can't. Even in our courts, uh, you can get a court to say this is contrary to the European Convention, but it doesn't annul the law that he finds contrary. That's a matter for Parliament. Final thought, please, Geoffrey. Um, how would you describe Priti Patel's plan to send people who are inadmissible for refugee status to Rwanda? These are innocent people. They haven't committed any crime. And in international law, an an innocent person who's threatened with torture, death or persecution is entitled to land in a country and claim refugee status. Now, many of these people 
may well be economic immigrants, but we have a duty mm -hmm. under the Refugee Convention to process them, to make a determination as to whether they simply want a better life or whether they are sent back would be subject to torture and persecution. And I would rather have that decision made by British courts, British judges, than by courts in Rwanda. I don't know whether you've seen the film Hotel Rwanda, but the man who was the hero of that film, who saved thousands of lives, has just been sent to prison for life by Rwandan judges who didn't even allow him to cross-examine the main witness against him. So I think my view is simply that we must go ahead with the court decision, because the government hasn't put this to Parliament, although it should have, um, to decide whether but it's going to lead Rwanda to. It's, it's... is contrary to international law, and for our own sake, for the benefit of our great reputation in the world, we should comply with mm. international law. Jeffrey Robertson QC, thank you tonight for joining me on the programme on GB News's first birthday. Well, there you are, folks at home, uh, whether you're watching this or listening on DAB. Um, I've argued there with two members of the legal profession. Uh, I haven't changed my mind one little bit. It seems to me that our democracy just doesn't work, just doesn't function anymore. We are subject to a whole series of laws, international conventions, whether it's the outdated 1951 UN refugee definition, whether it's the ECHR. I think we need Brexit 2.0 to make ourselves fully independent. Surely the job of judges is not to make the law up, it's to do as they're told by the elected government of this country. In a moment, we'll look at the latest economic figures in this country. Are they as bad as mainstream media are telling us? So who's in charge? Is it the legal profession or is it those we vote for? Have I got this completely wrong? Your views. Andrew says, when it comes to deporting people, the lefty lawyers definitely rule. That's what Boris Johnson will say. And yet, when Boris Johnson says that and thinks he's on the same side as you, we should remind him it was his choice to stay in the ECHR. Even Theresa May, believe it or not, wanted to leave it. Stuart says, I'm no longer sure. I just know it's not the voters in charge. Dave says, mainstream media run everything. No, we're here as an antidote to that, Dave, don't worry. David says, neither. It's the minority mobs. You only have to look at what they can get away with to see that. And lastly, another says, lefty lawyers, trade unions, large conglomerates, aristocracy, future king. In other words, not the person in the street. No, there is a very long list of people doing their absolute best to stop Priti Patel and Boris Johnson's Rwanda policy from working. If Rwanda works, it will act as a serious deterrent. If it falls at this hurdle, goodness knows how many more will come. Now, the economy. We got some figures out this morning. They weren't really very good. You'd believe, listening to some media, this was all the fault of the UK government. And much as I'm often their fiercest critic, this is happening right across 
the Western world. And joining me, Andy Mayer, uh, Chief Operating Officer of the Institute of Economic Affairs, a friend of this programme. Andy, the figures. Are we now in recession? Nigel, we're not in recession, and the figures, as you correctly highlighted, are not that different to what's going on in the rest of the Western world. If we look at the figures the UK government put out, they're monthly GDP figures, and these shouldn't be taken too seriously anyway. These things go up and down still all the time. They're not great, but you, to be in recession, to be clear, you have to have two quarters consecutive. consecutive of negative growth. And we've not got that. We've got one month and one before. And well, one. the previous one was pretty flat yeah. too. But we're not yet in recession territory, okay. and it's not the time to be pronouncing the death of the UK economy. So how do we compare to our neighbours? OK, so last year we were at the front of the pack of the G7. We did really quite well in what wasn't a particularly good situation then either. At the moment, the OECD forecast for 2022, and the OECD, to be clear, is the main forecasting body for the developed nations, yep. we're ahead of the pack. What they, people have focused on, those people who want to talk Britain down all the time, is that next year the OECD is forecasting will be at the bottom of the pack along with Russia. But we shouldn't take these things just in isolation. So it matters over the course of history how we're doing on GDP on a year-to-year -year mm. basis. So these things, in the long run, the UK isn't doing brilliantly. It could do a lot better yes. if it had a pro-growth government and a pro-growth economy. Yes, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know, allow people to build houses and produce their own energy and all of those things. Um, this, but the CBI, our friends that run the big businesses, think they've got the solutions, don't they? Well, OK, so the CBI, I think we, we need to remember that the CBI is like the National Union of Students for Grown-Ups. So all those people who want to be Labour Party ministers one day, they leave the NUS at the end of their student careers and they go to the CBI to become analysts in the business economy. Now, they're rather like the Financial Times in some respects. The FT is described as a business paper that doesn't like business very much. And the CBI is a bit lukewarm on people who are actually innovative. And we will allow things. the CBI right to reply, by the way. But Absol go on. Absolutely. <laughs> so they're not, they're not wrong about everything. They, the CBI just occasionally comes out with something radical, like maybe cut a few taxes, maybe regulate a bit, and both of those things are important. Um, but the, what they tend to come out with, firstly, is a very negative assessment because mm. they don't seem to think it's OK to talk up the UK government for whatever reason. And they still hate Brexit. And they still dislike Brexit. And they then come up with very small things that won't make a difference. So, for example, in their list of seven things to fix, they came up with, let's improve the planning consents of wind farms. Now, that's not wrong. Uh, on the energy picture, and the energy is the root of this recession, mm. it would be a good thing to revolutionise planning across the board. Yeah, including house building. Where including I'm, house where, building. Where I'm told a whole series of environmental regulations are holding back house building in a very, very big way. Andy, you know, the Institute of Economic Affairs, you are, I guess, a Thatcherite, free market style think tank. Um, if I said to the IEA, you know, you've got 45 seconds to give me three things government could do. As I said already, I'm not blaming them for everything. There is a downturn going on across the Western world. What three things would the IEA do? First of all, it's reverse the tax rises that the Chancellor brought in in the spring. They need to go. Secondly, because they slow growth. They slow growth. I mean, we need to stimulate the economy at this point. We don't need to shut it down. We need to revolutionise planning across the board, not just for one type of energy production. And we need to deregulate. The CBI said something about maybe tinkering with the apprenticeship levy. Get rid of it. Let's have instead the ability for companies to offset training against their taxes. And that would help. But they fundamentally need to stop tinkering and take this seriously because they're just terrified of doing anything radical that would actually make a difference. 
They are. Andy Mayer, thank you very much indeed. So there we are. The figures are not good, but we're not doing quite as badly as some elements of mainstream media would have you believe. Now, what the Farage moments? We keep hearing these speeches from European leaders. Well, not the Germans particularly, obviously, because they keep pretty quiet. But we keep hearing Ursula von der Leyen and others saying we're going to end the import of oil from Russia and ultimately perhaps gas too. And they come out as if it's some sort of virtue signal. And what is interesting is actually Europe has bought a little bit less when it comes to energy from Russia since they launched the war in Ukraine. But the thing is, though, the thing is, though, the price is that much higher. It looks on the face of it like Russian revenues could even be bigger. Well, joining me is lead analyst at the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air, down the line from Warsaw, Laurie Milversa, if I've pronounced that correctly. Laurie, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening, thank you. So the point I was making is that since the Ukraine war began, we've obviously seen a very large leap in energy prices. And in the case of gas, it was beginning to happen before. I know that Russia has found some new markets. China's buying more, for example. Um, but is it true? Is the, is, is the claim true that EU countries are actually paying Russia more than they were before the war began? Certainly. Um, so energy prices were up quite a bit on year um, already before um, uh, the invasion uh, started, uh, before the panic on the energy markets, before um, uh, the self-sanctioning by some energy companies and so on. And on, on top of that compounding it, you have uh, everything that has happened uh, since. Uh, the EU has managed to reduce imports in volume terms by about 20%, but uh, that's much less than the prices have gone up. There is still an impact because Russian oil is trading at a discount of 30% compared with uh, um, oil from other sources. So, so there is an impact and uh, the EU's ban on oil imports is only going to kick in over the next six, six months. So we're going to see more of an impact, but over these hundred days, it's still a lot of money that uh, went from the EU to Russia. And how do you feel? I mean, there you are in Warsaw, and I know the Polish position on Putin's behaviour has been very, very strong, uh, not just since the invasion of Ukraine, but before as well. How do you feel, as Polish people, being partnered with, dare I say it, German hypocrites? It's been clear that, uh, that Poland, Baltic countries, Finland, which, which is where I'm from, have been a lot faster to move on this um, and, and have taken the lead. Of course, it's more acute. Putin has been very clear that he's out to take what is theirs. And it's, it's very clear um, to, uh, to people in Poland and in Finland what that means. That means he doesn't intend to stop in Ukraine. So I think that sense of urgency um, is le felt less in Berlin, um, but also uh, Germany has uh, uh, has started from a very bad starting point where they thought that this energy trade would be something that would in fact um, deter uh, Russia um, from from doing exactly what it's doing now. And now what we're seeing is only thing that it's deterring is uh, Germany um, acting more strongly. 
So, so that's a massive miscalculation that the country, I hope, is, is working to reverse. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. Thank you very much indeed for joining me tonight on GB News. <clears throat> is it any wonder, folks at home, that the ruble is now higher against our currency than it was before the invasion? Now, what the farage? Boris Johnson. This is vintage Boris, another vintage Boris clip. This is why you either love him or can't stand him. Here is Boris Johnson at the Conservative Party conference last year proposing that we take 30%, yes, 30% of British farmland out of food production into some Richmond Green idea of rewilding. We are going to rewild parts of the country and consecrate a total of 30% to nature. We're planting tens of millions of trees. Otters are returning to rivers from which they've been absent for decades. Beavers that have not been seen on some rivers since Tudor times, massacred for their pelts and now back. And if that isn't conservatism, my friends, I don't know what is. Build back beaver, I say. There we are, build back beaver. And people thought it was wonderful and hilarious and brilliant. And when farmers said, are you serious about taking 30% of our land out of production, they were told, yes, you've got to get with it. We're going green. Carrie knows what she's doing. And today, there's Boris Johnson meeting with the farming community saying that actually we've got this all completely wrong and we need to abandon this idea and start to grow as much of our own fruit and vegetables in this country as we possibly can. And it's vintage, Boris, because those of you that love him couldn't care less that this is U-turn number 48 or whatever it is. And those of you that don't like him can see he hasn't got a single original thought in his head. He U-turns, he chops, he changes. This is a government without thought, a government without purpose, and a government headed, in my opinion, for the electoral rocks. Well, in a moment, we'll talk a bit about that government, a bit about what's going on in that building behind me here in Westminster. You see, it's very fortunate for me. I can find out so much about this and much else from Westminster's biggest gossip merchant. Yes, he really is. His name is Andrew Pearce. He's a columnist and writer for the Daily Mail. He's going to be my guest in a moment on Talking Pints. It's that time of the day, thank goodness. Yes, we've rolled out the barrel and it's time for Talking Pints. And I'm joined tonight by somebody that I've known for, goodness me, I think a quarter of a century. He's written so much rubbish about me, it's almost <laughs> not true. But he's occasionally been complimentary as well. And he really is. He's, he's at the heart of all Westminster gossip, so you never know what we're going to find out in the course of the next 12 or 13 minutes. And I'm delighted to welcome... On to Talking Pints, Andrew Pierce of Her Majesty's Daily Mail. Very glad to be here. Welcome to the programme. I'm not drinking pints because um, a pint of vodka would knock me out. No, it would not. Absolutely. Andrew, long-time journalist. Yeah. You've been doing this a very, very 43 long years. I was time. thinking about it on my way here. And it's interesting. You know, you and I have had our agreements mm. and disagreements down mm. the years, and that's naturally the way it is between politicians and journalists. Yeah. 
But ultimately, you're really a working-class Tory, aren't you? I am. Uh, I was completely hooked by Mrs Thatcher as a teenager growing up in Swindon. My father worked on the assembly line of British Leyland. I say he worked on the assembly line. He was often on strike because of the <laughs> way that the unions uh, had a grip. And it was always a show of hands, a dispute. And Dad would, be, would come home and explain to Mum he was on strike again because the show of hands. And he'd say, I'm telling you what, love. We all voted to stay to stay at work, but the shop steward would say, right, we're out. And I kept saying to my parents, this woman with a screechy voice called Margaret Thatcher, the leader of the opposition, was pledging to bring in secret ballots before industrial action. And I said to my parents, you should vote for her. She's got... This is something that will help this family, help this town. I voted for her in the... 1979 general election, I was still doing my A-levels. My brother was so furious, because he was looking over my shoulder, denounced me all the way home. Uh, I was a class war traitor. And I stuck with Thatcher right to the end. And I'm pretty sure, Nigel, uh, in the 1983 election, my parents also abandoned the Labour Party. Now, they, were, they were your adopted parents, they were, weren't they? Yeah. Um, but, but clearly gave you a good start in life. Yeah, I was, um, I was um, in a children's home for two, and a half, two years, two and a half years, in Cheltenham, in Gloucestershire. It was Catholic, run by the nuns. I'm sure they were delightful. Uh, and Mum and Dad had three children and they wanted a fourth, they wanted another boy. And um, the priest must have said, to, said in a sermon, there's lots of kids who need, need a home. Yeah. And um, this little fat lad, which was me, had been languishing there for two and a half long years. Long time, isn't it? It was a long time. Do you remember all this? No. No, uh, I don't. Um, and, um, but I always knew I was adopted. My mum and dad told me that right from the beginning. And um, people often ask me, did your um, siblings resent you? Shirley, Susan and Chris, my old... They never did. Mm. They, they embraced me. Uh, they might have been a bit cross um, when I arrived, but I never felt anything other than an integral part of that family. We don't look the same, though, it has to be said. <laughs> They're quite large and blonde, and I'm quite slim and dark. And you, from that background, why journalism? You know, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was, I was, my siblings would probably admit that I was probably better at school than they were, mm -hmm. um, but I had the gift of the gab. Uh, we had a school newspaper, which I wrote, and the English teacher kept accusing me of plagiarism, a word I had to look up, a word we all know a lot about probably now. right, though, wasn't it? No, no, absolutely not true. <laughs> and I was writing football reports and all sorts of things, and she said, you should really think about being a journalist. She said, because you've got a great way with words, and I've always liked writing, and I always had my nose in a book when I was mm. growing up, much more than most other children. I didn't want to play football, didn't want to do sport. And um, I got the job, ironically, Nigel, the first and only newspaper interview, interview I got was on the Gloucestershire Echo in Cheltenham, which was where the orphanage was, which is where I spent the first yeah. couple of years of my life, which was a coincidence. Have you, in later... A lot of people who are adopted mm. in later life try and retrace yeah. their birth mother or all of that. Is that a journey that you've been on? No, you always think about it, but um, my mum and dad were so wonderful. Yeah. I loved them to bits, and I'd have thought... I mean, Dad's been dead for 20 years, with Mum been dead for five or six years. I think they'd have been... They'd have said they'd support me, supported it, and they would have, but I think it would have hurt them, because yeah. they'd have felt they hadn't given me quite enough, and they gave me so much love. And when you consider, we were a pretty poor family on a council estate in Swindon. There wasn't much money, and yet they still brought this um, mouth into the house to feed, and, uh, and they say we all got treated the same. So I think they gave me more than I could have expected. So that's why I thought... I'm not going to do it. I remember years ago, an event we were at, a weekend event we were at, and you and I spoke, and I realised that we agreed a lot... Yes. ..on policy, direction, yeah. the way we felt about the country... Yeah. ..European Union, borders, yeah. all those things. Yeah. I mean, Andrew, you know, 
you're there, you're writing about current affairs, you're writing about the royal family, you're writing mm. about the shenanigans that go on in Westminster. Is this a Conservative Party? Is this the least Conservative Party leadership that I've ever written about? And um, I started working in the Parliament in 1989. It was at the, the wrong end of the Thatcher years, but what a Tory she was. Uh, John Major, well... It wasn't much of a Tory, was he? Bit wet. Bit poor, yeah, and boring and irritating and not half as nice as people think he was, actually. Mm. You know, mm. he used to shout holler a lot at his staff. Um, David Cameron was, an, was more at home in a coalition with the Liberals than he was with his own party. Uh, William Hague tried, was a Tory for a couple Briefly. of... Briefly. Yeah, and look at him now. Now sold out. Completely, completely. Uh, and I never, ever, was never, ever completely convinced about Boris Johnson's commitment to conservatism. Or Brexit. Well, I'm glad he was committed to that, because yes, with so you, so he I. delivered it. So am I. It wouldn't happen without Did him. Did he believe in it? Uh, who knows, because we know that he wrote a 2,000-word article on one hand yeah. and 2,000 on the other. And he'd, look, he's an opportunistic person. He's an mm. ambitious person. He had a very, very influential, clever wife, Marina, a QC, who wrote a very powerful piece in The Spectator, putting the arguments of Brexit better than Boris ever did. Very powerful. And uh, so uh, he we got there in the end. But I remember when Boris was mayor of London, I was horrified that a Conservative mayor of London wanted to give an amnesty to all illegal immigrants. Yeah. I thought, yeah. I don't want you to do that. Yeah. I want so you to sort it out. It's not just me bashing Boris on this show, as some of you accuse me of. It's true, isn't yeah. it? Look, I like him. He's engaging. And he, won a, he got a fantastic majority yeah. for the Tories to get Brexit Which done. Which he hasn't used. Well, he got it done in the sense that the deal he got to get us out of the EU was a lot better than others. A bit. It was a lot better than Theresa May's. Yeah, it was a bit better. And, David, and he had David Frost by his side, and I think David Frost, I hear rumours all the time, he was Lord Frost, he was Brexit yeah. minister. I think there's a chance, come the next general election, David Frost will be a member of the House of Commons. Well, he, yeah, he, I mean, he could renounce the peerage. He sat in that very chair yeah. a couple of weeks ago. I was impressed by him. I mean, let's He's a proper it, Tory. Andrew, let's be honest, they're going to get smashed at the next election, aren't they? Do you know what might save them? I was talking to somebody on the Labour side today, and they said... <clears throat> you lot obsess about Boris and the Tory party. You're, not, you're, missing a, you're missing something here. You do not understand the level of concern about Keir Starmer on the Labour benches. He's a dud. He's useless. He's boring. Did you see last week at Prime's Question Time? Now, I know it's just a bit of theatre. What was he doing going on those questions? Six there was questions. an open goal. Open goal. Even I could have put it in the net. And I can't play... I, I, play, I was kicking a football beat with my left foot. He didn't even mention the confidence vote. He's uncomfortable in politics. He's uncomfortable as leader of the opposition. He should be brilliant because he's but meant maybe, to be a clever but lawyer. But maybe boring is attractive yeah, after well, a period of turmoil. Well, yeah, but um, he's got to believe in something too and he doesn't believe in anything either. No, rather like Boris. And if Boris was to topple, and I think it's 50-50, maybe 55-45 that he survives, the Tories might go for something Do you know, really we're back boring. to 2010, Andrew. We're yeah. back to three Social Democrat passes. Yeah. Well, and it, be, it could be something like Ben Wallace, Defence Secretary, could be. had a good war. But you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. Um, you've got money on him. I've got money on him. You've probably got more money than, than me. Nadine Tahawi, who I've known since he's set up... A businessman, set up outsider, very successful business And Pretty Patel, who would believe him anything yeah. you believe in. Yeah, and here's the other thing about why Nadine Tahawi would be quite clever. Look, the Tories, the first two women prime ministers, well, the first great woman prime minister in, in Mrs Thatcher, Theresa May's... And then the worst ever. Ever. And then um, they would have the first non-white 
Tory leader in Nadim Sahabi. What would that say to the Labour Party with all their talk about inclusivity? Why do we look at people like this? Because because that people will make a virtue of it. But why don't we just look at people as whether well, they're capable, well, well, honest, and decent? I don't, I don't think of Nadim as um, uh, a dark. I, I couldn't care less, yeah. Andrew. Yeah, I'm not interested whether no. people are black or yeah. white or gay. I couldn't care no. less. I got into big trouble on Twitter, and the Guardian attacked me because I was being attacked on my LBC show. People say you just don't like uh, um, the Duchess of Sussex. What's her name? Meghan Markle because she's black and I said can I just tell you something well, I don't see Meghan Markle I don't see no, a black no, woman no, no. I don't see a woman of color I see an intensely irritating mm. American third-rate actress who's doing everything she can to wreck the royal family I was a racist yeah, oh, I, know, I, know. I was trending on social media. So how do you cope with all of this when you're doing your regular newspaper reviews, this double act that's been going on for a decade or more? Yeah, with Kevin Maguire. With Kevin Maguire. Yeah, I've known him. He was a Republican. He is. Um, can be quite humourless at times. Yeah, often, as is often the case um, with the left. Full of venom. Yeah, yeah. Um, loathes people. How, how does this double act work? Is it? I mean, are you friends off screen? We're mates. Difference, I think. We're yeah. mates. Yeah. He's been to my house for dinner. Needless to say, I've not been to his house for dinner because he hasn't invited me back. <laughs> and, he's, and I did. He did want to see my Margaret Thatcher shrine because in my home, the study is a shrine to Margaret Thatcher. There is a life-size cutout of the Iron Lady. Photographs of me with her, books, and so uh, just before midnight, Kevin went in there and we locked him in. And then we started banging on the door ten minutes later saying, the ghost of Mrs Thatcher will be with you in ten minutes. He was banging on that door to come out. You should, have left, thought, him should have left him you should have left him there. I thought he might attack the um, statue, <laughs> my, my cutout of the Iron Lady. A thought. Yeah. Big court case today, not, oh. just, not just Ramanda. Aaron Banks who He's backed great, me and funded me great for man. years. Great man. A, a businessman who came in very late to the process, thought Brexit mattered, put millions of his own pounds of his own money yeah, into yeah. it, attacked and accused by The Guardian, or one particular journalist on The Guardian, non-stop, that he was funded by Russia, covert mm. secret links. By implication, I was part of that. I even had Hillary Clinton saying I was funded by the Kremlin. I had hate mobs as a result of it. Aaron suffered financially, business-wise, as a result <clears> of it. Court judgment today that says nothing the Guardian read about banks was true, it was all wrong, the Russia hoax wasn't true, and yet, even though banks was defamed, and the judge accepts that, it's OK for a journalist to write things if they're not true, if they believe them to be in the public interest. Now, you know, I wouldn't for a moment want to shut you down as a journalist from writing things that you have reason through research to mm. believe to be true. Where the hell does this judgment leave us? Is this Blair's legacy to us? It is. It's, it's, a, it's a perverse ruling, and it's all to do with that wretched Human Rights Act, which empowered judges to make the, laws. You mean the Human Rights Act that my lawyer guessed earlier thought was so marvellous? Yes, exactly that one. It empowered judges to make laws. So we've got a privacy law in this country. Parliament never passed a law, a privacy law, in this country, ever. But the judges just put it together and put it together. But this is the most extraordinary uh, interpretation. So the story was wrong. Uh, it defamed Aaron Banks. Uh, it was untrue. You could say it was a lie, even. And yet, she won. It's extraordinary. Uh, and it's going to be very expensive for Aaron Banks. And if he appeals, even more expensive. He is going to appeal. Well, yeah. People should crowdfund for him because they crowdfunded well, for The Guardian and people should crowd... I know well, he's a wealthy man. I was hoping man. he'd win, Andrew. Yeah. I was hoping he'd win because, I'll be honest with you, I was going to launch a whole series of I lawsuits off the back of it to uh, yeah. demand apologies yeah. for much of what was yeah. said. You know, fair free comment yes, is one thing. Right. Actually being told that your pawns 
of the Russian state and Putin, when there's not a scintilla of truth in it, is absolutely it, shocking. I think it's wicked, actually, because particularly when we consider where we are with Russia today, Russia with waging an illegal war in Ukraine, this is going to increase the hatred of Aaron Banks even more, who, of course, perverse is married well, to a very nice Russian, Russian woman. I know, I know, I know. And, I, who, who, and people, there are already people saying she's a Russian spy. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a very grim day, and it's the judges yet again who are making all... Why is, it, why is Priti Patel's law on Rwanda being challenged in the courts? Now, she's won twice, brilliant, but, and it'll go to the Supreme Court again. But can't governments make laws anymore? When you look forward, Andrew, do you, I mean, do you still feel... Final thought, this yeah. bit of philosophy from Andrew Pearce, the gossip. The gossip manga goes philosopher. Do you feel optimistic for the future of our country? Not in the short term, no. I think we're going to have a very bumpy economic period. Uh, and um, uh, I, 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 Boris, I don't know what's going to happen post-Boris. Um, I think, no, very gloomy for a couple of years, um, but we've got to try and be upbeat. But, no, I, I don't feel it's very good and I can't stand the way the judges are taking over. So enough to tell you to drink. Andrew Pearce, thank you for joining me on Always Talking Bites. Time running short, but it is a little bit of time left for Barrage. The Farage, you send your questions in. Bob asks, will Boris be brave enough to climb down from his green energy stance and give the go-ahead to developing North Sea reserves? Not just North Sea, what about time very short? Do you think this government will start fracking for gas in the north of England? I think there's a real chance they might. And I think that what I think's happened in the last few weeks, when um, Linton Crosby's got a grip a bit of um, Boris Johnson, the green agenda is being strangled, and so it should be, and it should go even further than fracking. We should be getting some of that naughty or that. We should be cancelling that green levy in you our see, electric I think and gas bill. I always agree. Um, one viewer asked, oh, this is absolutely up Pierce's street. What is your honest opinion on Love Island? I've never watched it. You've never watched it? Well, you should watch it. I like Owen's daughters on it. I know, I know. But um, some, it's like somebody asked me today, should um, page three come back in the sun? I said, well, it won't do much for me. I love Island <laughs> doesn't do much for me. Some of the boys look all right. <laughs> there you are. It takes all sorts of different sorts, doesn't it? We are done for this evening. I'll be back with you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock at the usual time here in this magnificent studio.